It's really good to see you all. It's finally good to meet the rest of the Calvary family. Uh, like Pastor Scott said before, we've known each other now for seven years. Josiah is our mark of how long. Because we were there when you rushed to the hospital. Suddenly they were there and then they weren't. And so we've done life together in that journey. And I've seen so many people, the Sorensen family here, who are very deep to my heart. Where are they? I, I, just, I know they're here. They're right over there. They're just great people. Just put your hands together for them because I just think they're great people. Um, I knew Lisa when she had long, short hair, you know, so that's how long we've known each other. Um, I believe in family. I believe God raises up fathers to raise sons, raise mothers, to raise daughters, and engage together. The kingdom was not a new religious system. The kingdom was a family. It was a new reality on how we can build heaven here on earth, engaging our community, engaging uh, with family, engaging heaven through us to bring it to earth. There is something so significant when a group of people come together under the name of Jesus and says, what could we do today? What are the infinite possibilities of, like Ephesians 3.19 says, to be filled with the fullness of God. You know that, that one scripture could keep you for your whole life? Like if you really think about it, it says to know the love of Christ that passes all knowledge. To be filled with the fullness of God. What does that even mean? To be filled with the fullness of God. I haven't figured it out yet, but I think it looks a little bit like this. It looks like gathering together, loving one another, seeing something exponentially great happen in your community. This morning, I would really love to share my heart about understanding the presence of God that unlocks the purpose of God on your life. Ali and I have been traveling now for five years straight. We were on pastoral staff at a church in Karina called Worship Center for uh, seven years. And traveling all together, we have had the amazing opportunity to work with a brilliant bunch of leaders. That's why we love coming into environments where leadership, but kingdom leadership is celebrated. And so coming into rooms of leaders, very often you can get very excited about the fact that we're going to show you your purpose. My goodness, if I could figure out the call of God on your life, we could just set the world on fire. Which is true. But in our time of leadership and coaching, because we actually even run a leadership organization that consults for denominations and churches and even the marketplace. What I found is this, is that in the good-hearted nature of trying to find your purpose, sometimes you can miss out on the source of what unlocks it. And it's the presence of God. We can be so tenacious in our, in, in our wanting to reach the purpose of God on our life that we fail to stop and receive the presence of God that unlocks it. Who's ever had way too many things on their to-do list? But you're doing it for Jesus. For Alison and myself and my dialogue, she knows when, I'm, when, when I've got too much on my plate, when I go, it's just one more thing. It's just one more meeting. It's just one more email. It's just one more night out. But I'm doing it unto the Lord. What if we could find our optimum environment in just seeing and experiencing the presence of God? Then go out from that. It's how the greats did it in the Bible. If you think about the actual presence of God being everywhere all the time with us, 
with every breath that we take. We're not trying to get the presence of God anywhere. We just have to become more aware of it with every breath that we take. And how do you become more aware of it? You learn to declutter your mind from all the things you think you're so important to do. Ever heard anyone, like they, they're right in it. They're, they're, they're about to do something amazing and then someone offers them something great and then they go, I just need to go and pray about it. I just need to go and pray about it. Sometimes it's true. Other times it's called procrastination. What they're really saying is, I really just want to pray about it so I can figure, uh, figure a way to do it without God. If I can just try to get it in my mind, let me say this. If you have an opportunity ahead of you, step into the presence. Don't go through all your to-do list. Yes, there's due diligence, but just sit under the presence of God in whichever way you do it, whether it's the word, whether it's worship, whether it's going out to the beach, whether it's going to a city, whatever you find your, your, your space in. And you say, Lord, I just want your presence. Like Moses said, I will not go unless your presence goes with me. That's how much he honored the presence of God. He said, I don't want to be known as a deliverer. I don't want to change a nation. I don't want to go and save people. I don't want to do anything unless your presence goes with me. So this morning, I just want to share how we can, here and now in 2017, step into the presence of God, which will unlock the purpose of God in our life that gives us power everywhere. There we go. Are you ready for this morning? Okay, let's do this. If I could bring the first slide up, please. My opening thought is this, is we were designed to honor the past, not recreate it. We were designed to shape the future. True honor is taking that which was given to you and building on it. Not just re-gifting it, hoping nobody notices. Like, thank God that we don't have video shops anymore. Like, we went to go plug in our television, and we went, why? We have Apple TV. Like, let's not be blockbuster in the world of Netflix. Let's make a decision to say we honor what was built, but let's be a group of people that says, how do we reach more people in new ways? And you go, what does that have to do with the presence of God? Here's what it do. If you are afraid of innovation, stay away from the presence of God because the presence of God will challenge and break Jesus likes messing with us. Let's be clear that he will disrupt our thinking. He'll give you creative ideas. If you step into the presence of God, it's going to mess with you just a little. And he'll give you an idea and you'll go, really? But this is how we've always done it. That's how you kill any meeting of vision. Just have one person say that. But isn't that how we've always done it? That's what Nokia said too. They were written off by Microsoft as a bad debt for $8 billion. The chairman, weeping, weeping in front of the whole organization, weeping, said, but we never did anything wrong. The presence of God gives us a proactive power to live in our purpose that is called to engage here, now, and for the future generations to come. So Moses is messed with. If we can just go to the next slide. I don't think it's reaching. So if we just go to the next slide. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. 
First of all, there's a burning bush speaking to Moses. And we read this story like, nah, it's just a burning bush. It's a burning bush talking. At some point, I'm sure Moses would have thought Jethro, who was his father-in-law, did you put something weird in my kebab? Like, is there some, some herb you've got that you've put in my kebab? Because there's a burning bush speaking to him. It calls him by name. Then says, don't come near me. Like, just wait. Don't, don't, don't. Have you ever felt like you've been called by God to do something and just as about you're, you're about to turn direction, he says, stop. You're like, I'm so confused right now. But God told me. He said to go here. He said to do this. And now I feel like he's just, he's stopping me. There's this holding pattern that he's got me in. So he calls Moses by name. Then says, don't draw near to this place. But do something. Take the sandals off your feet. For where you stand is holy ground. See, Moses is a shepherd. He's out in the desert, in the wilderness. Not just the desert, the wilderness. And there's sharp rocks, hot sand, snakes, scorpions. And yet God calls him by name. But before he steps into the presence of God, into the fullness of what God has for him, God says, take off everything that protects you. It's like, like surely I can engage here without having to take these off. Because I know there's scorpions, and I know there's snakes. And I know that there's sharp rocks and hot sand. Plus the bush is on fire. Can I keep my shoes on? God says, no. See, before we step into the presence of God, there are things that we kind of have to take off. Whether it's old ideas, whether it's, whether it's old offenses, whether it's having to deal with something in our life that we just don't want to deal with. It's not that God doesn't want to give us the presence. It's the fact that if we protect ourselves from the presence of God, we'll never experience the fullness of it. So he says, take your sandals off. For where you stand is holy ground. And I love this part. Because when we take our protective mechanisms off from engaging with God, everywhere we stand becomes holy ground. He never said, come close to me, it'll be holy ground. He said, no, now that you've taken your protective mechanisms off, where you stand is holy ground. That means that no matter which nation you go to, no matter how dark it is, no matter how evil you think it is, all those things, where you stand now is holy ground. As long as you're not protecting yourself from the presence of God, going, God, you, you can have part of my life, but I'll keep this part of my life. No, let me pray about it. See, when we fully engage, man, we live in adventure. If you want a neat religion, don't choose Christianity. Because Jesus ain't that cute. He'll step into your world and he'll be like, why don't you go pray for that person? Why don't you start that business? Why don't you go plant a church? Why don't you go do this? Why don't you go that? And you go, it's in my heart, but... There's these protective mechanisms. There's old filters. My mom said I never should. My third grade teacher said I never amount to anything. And there's these mechanisms. That, there's lies that we have believed that God says it's time to take them off because I want wherever you go to be holy ground. Take the sandals off your feet. Let's go to the next slide. Then Moses, this is later, God gives him the download of, you're going to go deliver my people. Then Moses answered and said, but suppose they will not believe me 
or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, the Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a rod. And then he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent. At this point, I'm sure Moses thought I should have kept my sandals on. He says, what is that in your hand? Now, a shepherd, I'm not a National Geographic guy. Like, let's be very clear here. I have four cans of mortine in my house because I like to know that I can kill any bug that comes in. Some people are catch and release. Please, it's a huntsman. It comes into my house, it deserves to die. Amen for the spider haters. Come on. My, my aunt has arachnophobia, like bad. Like, I mean bad. Like, no toy spiders, nothing around. We played havoc with her as children. But once she's, there was a spider in her bathroom, and she so freaked out that she took a can of mortine and sprayed, like she fumigated the bathroom. Fumigated. Shut the door. Called my mum just to let us know she was okay. Walked in later and couldn't find the body. She didn't sleep well that night. But this is, this is Moses. He goes, he says, I've got to cast this rod on the ground. So first of all, God says, take your sandals off. One protective mechanism. But think about it. The second protective mechanism that Moses had was also his rod. How do you keep things away from you? What do you do with that? That thing is a protective mechanism. God says, look, you're taking your sandals off. Good, good, good job. Time to throw that other thing on the ground. <laughs> so he's sandalless, and now he's rodless. He's completely vulnerable in the presence of God. Completely vulnerable. Anything that could come, he can't beat it away, and he definitely can't protect it from his feet. He is completely vulnerable. Yet God says, throw it on the ground. The ground that which has now become holy. Now watch this. He throws it on the ground. And it becomes a serpent. What I learned later on, and which you find later in David's story as well, which we'll touch on, is that shepherds, like if I was a shepherd, I'd just go pick the biggest thing I could find, which wouldn't be that tall because, you know, I'd have to hold it. So I would just take this big stick. See, th the difference is, is that Moses, David, the people that actually were shepherds knew how to pick rods that they'd etch their story into. So think of their rod as their diary entries. They would make a notch when anything big happened. Thus, David writing in Psalm 23, your rod and your staff comfort me. When have you ever been in trouble and gone, man, I'm going to cuddle this rod to sleep. It just comforts me when I'm sad. Unless, unless it serves something bigger. It told a story about where he'd been. It told part of his story about killing Goliath. It told part of his story about killing the bear. It told part of his story about killing the lion. It told part of his story, and he said, in my darkest days, I can look at the story that God has given me, and therefore, I will be comforted. And so Moses had a story in this rod. But what was Moses' story before this encounter? Failure, murder, a whole bunch of stuff. I wonder if in those 40 years when he was walking through the wilderness, he would have thought, I should have just never done it. I should have just kept my mouth shut. I should have just kept walking. I wouldn't be here if I hadn't done that. And now look where I am. 
Now look where I am. And in this shepherd's rod, there would have been all these notches of Moses' story. And God says, throw it on the ground. Has there ever been a moment where we have to throw our story on the ground in the presence of God? Our old story. The story that doesn't comfort us. The story that always brings us back to, am I sure I can do it? God, have you really got something on my life? But I feel like a failure. Look at where I am because of what my story says. And God says, throw it on the ground because I'm not going to let your old story protect you anymore. I don't want your old story to protect you because it's not protecting you. It's harming you. Yes, our stories are our testimony, but not until they manifest it first and come out on the other side. Because when you can share your testimony and it's freeing, awesome. When you share your testimony and yet there's this deep down gut feeling where you go, is that still part of me? That's not freedom. And God doesn't want you to live as a slave to an old story. So he says, throw your old story on the ground and it becomes a serpent. Why is it so interesting that the main figures in this particular story in, in, in regards to nature is the ground and a serpent? Let me show you. Can we go to the next slide over? In Genesis 3, 14 and 17, God, Adam and Eve have failed, and God doesn't curse humanity directly. Look at what he says. It says, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle. And in 17, he says, cursed is the ground for your sake. So when Moses throws his old story on the ground, after he takes his protective mechanisms off, he throws his old story on the ground, it manifests. Now, what does it manifest? And have you ever been in the presence of God and you're like worshiping, but you're really mad on the inside with somebody? And maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a family member. Usually it is. But it's like somebody's made you mad. And there's issues going on in your life, whatever it might be. And, or maybe there's something in you and you're, try, and you're trying to deal with it. And it comes up in worship and you're like, repress it, suppress it. Just, it's not the Lord. It's try, and God's trying to say, throw your old story on the ground. Here's the moment. Throw it on the ground. Throw it on the ground in the presence of, 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 of the holy presence of God. Throw your old story on the ground because I don't want you to be a slave to this anymore. Throw it on the ground. And we're like, no, we'll deal with it later. Let us deal with it later. Let me pray about it. Let me deal with it later. And God's like, uh, throw it on the ground. Because if you can't throw your old story on the ground, God can't give you a new story that delivers a nation. Just throw your old story on the ground. Let it manifest. Who cares? Can we just get over the ecosystem that we live in and live in God's ecosystem? We, we just need to say, you know what? This is part of it, and I don't want it to control me anymore. It's time to get rid of it. Whatever it might be. It's not neat, and it's not always cute. But I can tell you right now, never let an old story control your future. Let's go to the next slide. So my observation is this, is you have to remove your protective mechanisms to experience the fullness of God's presence and your purpose. Moses' rod had to be delivered so that he could be a deliverer. Isn't that interesting? His old story had to be delivered so he could now become a deliverer. What's interesting is after this, God says to him, he says, pick it up by the tail. 
When I speak in New Zealand, because they have nothing really deadly that can kill you. They're all like, what's the big deal? I go, you're not talking to an Australian though, are you? Because if you're an Australian, you know that you never, ever, under any circumstances, pick a snake up by its tail. Yet God says to Moses, pick it up by the tail. Meaning what? See, there's a moment in time when your old story has authority over you. But when you throw it on the ground and you let God deal with it in holy ground. Notice when, God, when, when Moses threw his old story in the ground, God didn't call a whole bunch of people from the surrounding regions to say, check out his old story. He didn't humiliate him. He didn't remove his dignity. He actually didn't even do it publicly. It was just him and God. He's saying, come on, throw your old story on the ground. Sometimes people don't know you have an old story, but it's just between you and me. He says, throw your old story on the ground. And when your old story manifests, this is what I'm going to tell you to do. I'm going to tell you to pick up a curse by its tail and have authority over it. Because now the curse has been reversed. Because when you throw your old story, there might be failure, might feel cursed. That in the presence of God, it might manifest. But then after he's dealt with it in holy ground, you can pick it up and have authority over it. Because now your old story isn't the curse you carry anymore. It's now your testimony that brings hope to the future. How many of us need to take authority over our old story? It will not have authority over us. And isn't it the beautiful picture of saying, I can take my old story that has now been made holy because now I have authority over it. It shall not control me anymore. And finally, when you are willing to throw your old story onto holy ground, you'll be given authority to write a new story. I know in this room that there would be at least a percentage that say, it's time for me to write a new story. It's time for me to write a new story. I don't want to be the product of my old story, my old generation. I want to see what God has for my future and future generations. Psalm 105 verse 8 says there is a blessing for a thousand generations. A thousand, that's not a thousand years, that's a thousand generations. That's like 40,000 years. Let's go to the next slide. My reflective questions for us today, because I want to leave you with something practical this morning. These are just health checks. Is what is your dominant protective mechanism? Is it finance? Is it relationships? Is it your ego? We all have them. It's just which one controls us worst. Is I don't do that because I don't know if I can afford it. I don't know. And for the record, I want you to do your due diligence with finances. But when God looks at your dream, he doesn't necessarily see a budget. He says, what can you believe for? Is it relationships? If I do that, what if I lose these old friendships? Because they've always, they, they enjoy mediocrity. There are groups of people that actually enjoy living the status quo. I just don't like being part of that group. You just have to choose. What is the trade-off? If that's my protective mechanism, then you will be slave to other people's opinions forever. Until you can say, you know what, I want to be free. Maybe we need to throw that part of our story on the ground. Finally, our ego. Oh, but what if I fail? Welcome to life. You know what? If I'll tell you right now. Failure has killed more dreams than fear ever has. Failure, that failure, that fear of failure will kill dreams. 
But if we can be free of realizing that failure might be a word in our life, but it's not the word on our life, then we can live free. What do you fear? What is the worst case scenario if you remove your protective mechanism? I'm sure and hope it's not being bitten by a scorpion or a snake. And finally, who or what are you protecting yourself from? If we can articulate these things, what will happen is that we will not live a reactive life, but we will live a creative life. And they're two very different postures to live. We can either react to everything, and therefore our destiny is always determined by other people's opinions, or we can say we're going to create with God what he has on our life. And then from that place, build an environment, an ecosystem that attracts people into the call of God on their life. It's up to you how we want to live. Let's go to the next slide. So in 1 Samuel 17, 40, this is David. Goliath is taunting the children of Israel. Saul tries to put his protective mechanisms on David. David says, it doesn't fit me. And here's the deal. My protective mechanisms will never fit you and nor yours mine. But if we know our story, why would he take his staff in his hand to pick five smooth stones. It's explicitly put there. He took his staff to go pick the stones. And then, this is crazy, he draws near the Philistine. I wonder when he was leaning down, picking up those five stones, that in the notch in that rod said, I killed the bear, I can do this. I killed the lion, I can do this. See, his story was that of, when they're bigger than me, I usually win. And I want that to be your story. When they're bigger than me, I usually win. But we need a story that reminds us of that. And we can't do it mixing the old story with the new story. Then he draws near the Philistine. Let's go to the next slide. I want to show you the difference between Saul and David, just quickly. Saul had the stature of a leader, but the spirit of a follower. David had the stature of a follower, but the spirit of a leader, and the kingdoms were built on how their king honored the presence of God. Did you notice that Saul's most spiritual experience, or one of, if not the top one, was when he prophesied among the prophets when they found his father's donkeys. Now look at the difference in leadership styles. David takes care of his father's sheep, and Saul loses his father's donkeys. What kind of shepherd do you want? So, do you know that donkeys were worth way more money? They were like the Mercedes-Benz of the day. Was your donkey. David, he's a shepherd. He's, it's just sheep. Yet Saul had the most expensive things to look after, and he didn't look after them. So they're running out. And so he's anointed king, and then he comes back. And there's a group of prophets that are prophesying. He joins the group, and it says, and he starts to prophesy. Isn't it interesting that he only does that when he's a, around a group of people that are more spiritual than him? Meaning that his spiritual weight was only ever showed or displayed when he was in the room with more spiritual people. Means he never really carried it. He just got the benefit of somebody else's. And if you're going to lead... 
If you're going to be a king of a nation, you need to know what you carry. Not just... Because when we leave this room to go and face our week, because what happens in this room is there is the presence of God. You've experienced the presence of God. There is maturity and love and grace and peace and joy. But you need to take that and be able to carry it out there. Otherwise, you'll just get your weekly hit every Sunday. What do you carry? Don't just prophesy when the prophets are prophesying. Prophesy when God leads you to. Pray for the sick when God leads you to. Because you carry it. You're not just the circumstance of your environment. Let's go to the next slide. So King Saul. Let's get to do a little bit of description. King Saul, and he was a handsome man whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome man than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. In essence, he was tall, dark, and handsome. Allison once said, I wanted to marry someone tall, dark, and handsome. I guess two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> Can you imagine that being written about you? In the nation, there is nobody better looking. Ain't nobody. If there was an Israel bachelor, like the television show, Saul would be it. Now, I want you to see this. Then Samuel took a flask of oil. I want you to remember that flask of oil and poured it on his head. Finally, when they came to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. Then the Spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied among them. God was giving him a taste. This is what you can always have. But see, Saul was all about his position and not the presence. Let's go to the next slide. Let's meet David. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or or at his physical stature. We've made that mistake before. Because I have refused him, for the Lord does not see as man sees. For the man looks at at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now look at the way they describe David. Now he was ruddy, with bright eyes, and good looking, pleasant to look at. Compared to he was the most handsome man in Israel. In essence, David was cute. I used to think cute things were good. I always used to call things cute. Baby's cute. Puppy's cute. Everybody's cute. Just, that's cute. That's cute. Until Alison once said to me, you've got to stop calling things cute. And I'm like, why? She went, cute means interesting but ugly. And I said, well, I've been called cute my whole life. (laughs) Then Samuel, then Samuel took the horn of oil. Saul gets anointed with a flask. David gets anointed with a a horn. Something that is man-made anoints Saul. Something that sacrificed its life anoints David. Do you see the difference? And anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Let's go to the next slide. That means that David knew and understood the power of the presence of God. You've got David worshipping in the field. Do you know that when David was anointed, he had to go back to the field? How depressing. Like he's anointed, he is covered with oil. And some say that anointing a priest 
Back then, it was like four liters of oil. I know one pastor that does one liter when she anoints elders. Can you imagine standing in church service, just one liter of oil standing? Wear your good clothes that day. And, and so he's, a, he's anointed, covered, dripping. In Psalm 133, it says, like the dew that falls on Mount Hermon, it's like the oil that anointed Aaron, the priest, and it went upon his head and it flowed all the way down his beard, all the way covering his garments. This is what David would have walked like after he was anointed back to the sheep. Can you imagine going back to the sheep and going, I'm anointed to be king. I'm dripping with oil, but I'll be about my father's business until the right time. Talk about leadership, understanding I'm anointed king, but I'll go and serve with my dad. Because until the appointed time, I'm not going to do anything. That is just unheard of almost. He had everyone, I'm anointed king. Dad, thanks for that. I'm not doing any of this stuff anymore. He's out there. Still worshiping, because realize this, David's identity was never wrapped in his position. It was his intimacy with the presence of God. He had security because he didn't need a position to be his protective mechanism. So he goes through, he loves the presence of God. And then eventually he pens something like this. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. In essence saying... I don't want to be king without the presence of God. Like Moses said, I will not fulfill my purpose unless your presence goes with me. I don't want it all. I don't want, I don't want any of it unless the presence of God goes with me. David says, I would rather be on the outskirts of the presence of God than be a king without it. Let's go to the next slide. See, David knew without the presence of God, his position meant nothing. And this is something I want to land on just for a minute. You and I are children of God in a kingdom that knows no end with an inheritance that knows no bound. It is something that is in us to be significant in the world we live in, whatever level that is. But we still need to find our anchor in the presence of God, whatever it might be. That presence of God makes us throw our old story down and pick up a new one. That presence of God makes us, dis- it disrupts our life. But it builds something for the future. If I can go to the next slide, please. So here's some doorkeeper facts. I've always wondered why he said the doorkeeper, but this is what it really the role was. The doorkeeper was a very important and privileged job, only entrusted to the most capable, loyal, and trained priest. His job was to make sure that no one who was unclean or deserving would be allowed to enter the temple of the Lord. In this way... God's house would not be defiled. The incredible honor for this priest was that he had the incredible position to be in God's approximate presence, not even in it, just around it. Not intimacy, but just so close that, it could, that only a small fraction of humanity could ever experience. But the one thing that caught me was unclean or undeserving. Because in order to be allowed into the presence of God, you had to be two things. You had to be a male and you had to be circumcised. Well, back then. Because they had their outer court, the inner court, and then the Holy of Holies. The only way, the only place that women and Gentiles were allowed were way out in the outer courts. That was like the public space. Anything beyond that, somebody had to check you at the door like a bouncer. Just like Israeli bouncer. The temple was like this high-end club or something. You know, like, it's just like you had security. This is the doorkeeper's role. 
And how do you know if someone's unclean or undeserving? Knowing that the only people allowed inside are men who are Jewish. This is how the doorkeeper's role looked. Next. All right, stand there. It's not like you could have photo ID or something. It's just. <laughs> Can you imagine if that was in the role description now? There'd be nobody. Thank God we moved into the future. Can you see the extreme example David is using? By saying, I will give up my kingdom. I will give up my crown to check covenants. He's saying, I would rather, that's how much the presence of God means to me. I'd rather do that role just to be close to it than to have my title, to have my crown, to have my kingdom and not even have it at all. That's the extreme measure David would go, he said, because without it, I can do nothing. If I could have the musicians up, please. So in our life today, what protective mechanisms do we need to take off? What do we need to throw down? Let's go to the next slide. My observation is this. If you sacrifice the presence of God, you will compromise your purpose in God. David was a great king. He had his moments, but he was a great king. 40 years. Moses was a good leader. He was a great leader. He delivered people from slavery. He had his moments, much like everybody. But if you notice, when you have moments of failure, but your anchor's the presence of God, somehow your story turns out all right. But when you have moments without the presence of God, because that's not your anchor, and your title, your position, your protective mechanisms are, your story doesn't end that well. I want your story to end well. I want your story to be told by your great-grandchildren. Because that's what family's about, telling stories. Let me show you the next slide as I bring it to a close. If Dr. Karen Leaf says this, your thoughts affect yourself, the people in your current generation, and the next four generations after you. Can I just bring up the slide? There's a photo of my dad and my son and myself together. See, this picture means a lot to me. This picture means a lot to me. Simply because this is a miracle. My dad, at eight years old, chose to not be like his father. Eight years old. Chose to not be like his father. He had to throw the story that was given to him on the ground and pick up a new one. He now has authority over that story. And because of that story, has changed his grandchildren's life. He couldn't live with the protective mechanisms of, well, my dad did it. Well, I can. He made that decision at eight years old. Today, we live in the blessings of an eight-year-old decision from Ian Stone. My life didn't do it. My dad's did. But what's your protective mechanism? What are you throwing down today in the presence of God? What, what, what is it? Because God wants you to live free. Would you stand up and let me pray for you this morning?
I don't want anyone to leave today feeling fear, feeling fear of failure, feeling like they're boxed in, feeling like there's a challenge that I can't go any further with my life. I'm blockbuster in a world of Netflix. Well, today that can change. What could happen if we anchor our whole life in the presence of God? What are the infinite possibilities? It says, God, I'm giving you everything. My story, my protective mechanisms, my sandals, my staff. Because I would rather be in the approximate presence doing a role that isn't that great than to have the title and the position and the power and not have your presence. I really hope and pray that today can be the day of decision that says, I want your presence more than anything else. Would you close your eyes and raise your hands just so I can pray for you and bless you this morning? Father, we come before you and we thank you that you are a good, good father, that you love us so, so much, that we are willing to throw our old stories down in order order to live in your new story for us. God, we give you glory, we give you praise, and we thank you that your presence goes before us It lives in us and is around us and that we have access to it with every breath that we take. Lord, over every family represented here today, over every organization, over every dream, over every uh, relationship, Lord, we pray that your presence be at the forefront, that your presence be the anchor of our soul. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen and amen. Would you give Jesus a hand in the house this morning? I just want to thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Pastors Scott and Susie. It has been a great journey together. I look forward to many, many more. I really appreciate the fact that I could speak into your lives. I hope that today is a step forward, a one-degree shift for you to walk in the presence of God in a whole nother level and therefore unlock your purpose and live with power. I know I'm going to hand it back to Pastor Scott now, and I know that if there's any prayer or you just want someone to stand with you for some stuff, I know there's a prayer team. And of course, we'll be here to pray for you and partner with that as well. Thank you so much, Pastor Scott.